The reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes from one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. We're going to come uh, and look at God's word together. Uh, and we're in this series, King and Kingdom, and looking at the Gospel of Matthew. Um, first three chapters, we really looked at who the king was, and we looked at Jesus the king. As we came to chapter five, we started asking the question then, what kind of kingdom? We know who the king is, but what does his kingdom look like? And we came to this passage called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus has five blocks of teaching in this gospel, and this one's the longest. To help us see what this kingdom living looks like. In the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the Beatitudes and how kingdom living is radically different to anything in the world. And we're picking up at verse 17, which was just wonderfully read to us by Joshua and Sarah. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, we're picking up verse 17. Uh, we're not going to hang around too much because this is a lot here for us to look at, uh, and some of it's tough. Uh, so let's dive in and pray that God blesses us as we and helps us as we do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how you've encouraged us but challenged us these last few weeks through this sermon that Jesus gave. Uh, and I pray that you continue to do that today as we look at this. Some of this stuff seems tough to us. We pray for your Holy Spirit's help to understand and to understand what it means for us to be your people living in your kingdom. Amen. And the question that we start with looking at today is the king and the law. The king and the law, straight in at verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. What is Jesus talking of here? Well, quite simply, the law and the prophets are kind of a catch-all phrase for the Old Testament, the whole of it. The law, the five books, the 
first five books of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, all that, the ceremony of the moral law, and the prophets, what they said. It's a catch old law. We're asking, what is Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament? And what does Jesus say? Well, it's first off, it's not to get rid of it. Jesus does not come to get rid of the Old Testament. And why would he? The Old Testament, the law, it is the expression of God's character and will. God's revelation of himself in the Old Testament. It is eternal and unchanging. We thought about this in our studies when we looked at the book of Hebrews. In the law, we see a God, a wonderful, powerful, just God. And we see his holiness. But throughout the Old Testament, we also see God's love for his people. And we see his promises. You see, Jesus said, I haven't come to destroy the past. I haven't come to get rid of that. Actually, no, in verse 18, he says, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Don't worry too much about the phrases there. The iota is a tiny, sometimes unimportant letter in the Hebrew language. Sometimes you put it in, sometimes you don't. It doesn't really matter. And the tiny dots are what is used to distinguish between letters that look the same in Hebrew. Shove a dot over it uh, to show which letter it is. The point is, it's all good, Jesus was saying. It's all good. The tiniest bit. And Jesus says, I'm not here to get rid of it. In fact, twice in verse 17, he says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. Well, who is he saying that to? Who is this accusation coming from? Well, we've already seen, haven't we, that Jesus isn't like any other teacher there was around at the time. Both he and John have called out the religious establishment. And we've seen in this sermon already that Jesus blows away their conceived ideas about what kingdom living looks like. And Jesus' actions in the future of this book will be in stark contrast to that of the religious leaders. So whether this charge is already being talked about by the local rabbis or it's a preemptive strike, they'll get there. The accusation will be that Jesus violates God's law. And Jesus outright uh, rejects this. He says, I'm not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus loves the law. He is God, and we see how he exalts the law. He magnifies it, and he fulfills it. Before we come to that, we can ask ourselves as we come to this, what is our relationship with the law and the prophets, with the Old Testament? It's a question that the New Testament church battled with. Now we have Jesus. Do we need all that? Now we have grace. Do we get rid of the law? Paul speaks a lot into this, and we haven't got a, a long time or to go into the whole of Romans to see how he argues this, um, but it's always worth a study there. Paul talks about the law. He talks about the value. He says it shows us God. It shows us sin. It shows us our need for a savior. He said we're not saved by the law, but that doesn't mean we discredit it. Oh, it's discredited. Romans 3.31, he says, do we th overthrow the law by the faith? 
By no means, he says. We uphold the law. He says in chapter 7 of Romans, For I delight in the law of God. I delight in my inner being. Christians aren't saved by the law, but more than anyone, we should be people of it. But this morning, I want us to look at two big questions I believe this passage raises. And the first we've just read, Jesus said he came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. The question this morning, how does Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? I've got four answers this morning. First off, Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets because he is the one that they were pointing to. We thought a lot about this, and again, we can cycle back to Hebrews for this. It's all online if you want to listen back. But we thought there that in Jesus Christ, the law and the prophets are fulfilled. Covenant promises to Abraham and David, carried through from creation and the fall, are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The ceremonial law of the Old Testament, pictures of sin and separation and sacrifice, are all signposts to the one true sacrifice, Jesus Christ's. Priests and altars and sacrificial lambs, all this stuff that seems so foreign to us, we thought of in the book of Hebrews, and the blood. That's what we saw in Hebrews. So much blood in the Old Testament law. Killing and spreading and sprinkling and flit all the blood. All points to the better sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The prophets, their message foretelling of Messiah, foretelling of Bethlehem babes of Jerusalem donkey journeys. The servant of Isaiah. All pointing to and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you're a parent, read the Jesus Storybook Bible to your children. And better still, read it to yourself. You see every picture and every promise and every thread of the Old Testament comes together and are all pointing to and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus fulfills the law because they were the one it was all pointing to. Secondly, Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets by keeping it. Jesus kept the law. He was the only person to that point who had, and he is the only person who will. He obeyed God perfectly. He was tempted in every way, just like we thought a few weeks back, but the difference is he did not sin. He was the Lamb of God, but he was the spotless Lamb of God. He's the only one who could, who could keep the moral law. 
therefore fulfilling it in his deed and lifestyle. He kept the law, but in Jesus we also see one who delighted in doing so. It was not a chore for him to fulfill the law, but in loving obedience that came from the heart. And I think sometimes this isn't something we give a load of thought to. Until you stop, like we did in Life Group the other week where we were thinking about the temptation of Jesus and asked, what if Jesus had given in to temptation? What if Jesus had fallen then? That would have been it. No salvation, nothing. But praise God, he didn't. I used to tell one of my favorite illustrations when I got here first quite a bit. Uh, but I haven't for a while. It's been a few years. So uh, you're going to get it again. It's not jelly molds. You're okay. Uh, but it's of a little boy and the dreaded thing called class detention. Do you remember them where the whole class has done wrong and they, the whole class needs to miss their break as their penalty? And the story is about little Jimmy who asks the teacher, if I find someone else to do my detention, can I go out to play? And the teacher humors him and says, yes, Jimmy. So Jimmy looks around the classroom and he points out and he says, what about Billy? Billy can do my detention. And the teacher says, no, Jimmy. Billy can't do your detention. He's got his own detention to serve. Jimmy not giving up though, still boy, and he looks around and he says, okay, if not Billy, what about Bobby? Bobby can do my detention. And J the teacher says, no, Jimmy. Bobby is the hamster. Do you see it? The punishment for breaking the law is humankind's punishment. Only a human could pay it. And no other human could take my punishment because they've got their own. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. So what is to happen? So Jesus came, totally God, yet totally man. Just like us in every way, except he was sinless. The spotless lamb of God to take my punishment. And that's the third way he fulfills. He fulfills the law by keeping it, but he fulfills the law as representative. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. No human could. I have broken the law. I am condemned. I have fallen so far short of God's law. But Jesus kept it. And he went to the cross not for anything he had done, but to take my rebellion upon himself. So he can atone for my sin. He can take that rebellion, that sin, the way I have fallen short and broken God's law, and he takes it all upon himself, and God punishes him instead of me so that I can know forgiveness of sin, peace with God, and a sure hope of heaven. He fulfills the law by yielding 
to it in perfect obedience. Yet he pays the penalty for our breaching of it. As the hymn writer put it, guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a saviour. He fulfills the law, and it was always all about him. He kept it like no one else ever could. And he kept it for me and died in my place because I couldn't as representative. The final answer then to this question is what we see Jesus doing in the rest of this chapter. And he fulfills the law in his teaching. He teaches what the law really means. And what we see him doing as he teaches is he brings out the real significance of God's commands. We saw earlier those who accused Jesus said that he was here to abolish the law. As they put that accusation forward, I'm sure there were some in the crowd who were secretly hoping that Jesus would abolish the law. Or maybe not get rid of it altogether, but certainly water it down a bit. Make it easier. But what they see and what we see is Jesus doing the opposite. Instead of making the law smaller... Jesus shows them that what the religious leaders have been doing is boxing up the law, trying to pigeonhole it with legalism, but actually what Jesus does is sets it free. And it's much bigger than they ever thought. Jesus fulfills the law by filling it full. Filling it full of its true meaning. Showing what it was always supposed to be. Getting past the rules and the regulations of the religious leaders and getting to the heart, to the motive, to the attitude. Going deep. Some have said it's like the religious leaders were lawyers and Jesus is the cardiologist. He is interested in the heart. And what the remainder of this chapter is, hard as it is if you've read ahead, is six examples of what this looks like in practice. Well, the rest of the chapter isn't the entirety of the law or a new law, but six illustrations saying this is what it looks like in practice. This is what the law really meant for these things. He starts each section like the one we read in verse 21. You have heard it said of old. And then Jesus says, but I say to you. What he's saying is this is the way that you've been thinking about it. This is the way that you've been taught. This is the way the interpretation of the law that you've been given. But I'm here to correct your thinking. So that you can see that this isn't a shallow tick list. But this is internal and deep, and it shapes everything. We'll look at the other five closer together next week. But this morning, let's just look at the first 
one of these six examples as we try to understand what Jesus is doing here. Verse 21. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. There we see the sixth commandment. Do not murder. And I would guess it's pretty easy not to murder someone. Now, I'm not playing down the crime of murder in any way. Murder is cruel and devastating and heartbreaking. And although we do hear about it, and sometimes it feels we're hearing about it a bit more, it is still incredibly rare. Nearly everyone you will have met will have never murdered anyone. And in a tick list or Bible bingo law, most will be able to tick and say, I haven't murdered anyone. But look at verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now what is Jesus saying? Is Jesus getting rid of the original commandment? Is he saying murder and anger are the same thing? Is he saying those things should have the same punishment? Jesus is saying that the commandment has always been more than just the outward act of murder, but also the heart of anger that lies behind it. Remember, we're not making a new theology about this, but Jesus is saying to them and to us, this is far more serious than you might have ever assumed. The religious leaders had taught that the physical act of murder was the command. But Jesus is saying it's much deeper than this. You cannot just restrict the application to the physical act alone. It's also about the heart. And anger, just like physical murder, is rebellion against God and falling short of his standard and therefore ultimately deserving of punishment. What is the problem with murder? It's a good one to ask your non-Christian friends if you have that kind of relationship with them. Because if your worldview is that we are a cosmic fluke, a bunch of chemicals that went bang with no inherent value, that survival of the fittest is what we believe, if they hold that worldview, then where does murder as a crime fit into that worldview? But if we are created beings made in the image of an all-powerful God with purpose and inherent worth that comes from being loved by him, then taking of life is sinful. 
But that's what we see here with Jesus. He says, if, every, if anyone is angry, if anyone insults his brother, the Hebrew word there is raka. It might be in some of your translations. It means despising someone for what they do. Literal translation, calling someone useless. Later it says, whoever says you fool. When we understand that one a bit more, it means calling someone stupid. Jesus says, getting angry, seeing someone as physically or intellectually worthless is at the root of this. You are doing a similar thing. You don't get to act towards someone or even think that someone is worthless towards someone who is made in the image of God. They are not worthless. It is of the same spiritual sickness, to murder with a knife, to assassinate character, to gossip, to hate, to burn with anger. And it does lead to all sorts of horrific things. War, ethnic cleansing, abortion, abuse, neglect. Now, don't understand, we're not talking about a righteous anger. We've talked about that before. Jesus got angry. And there are times, we said, when our hearts burn against injustice and hypocrisy, when we get angry for others. But that's not what we're talking about here and what Jesus is talking about. This anger is a selfish one. An anger where I put myself here and see others as worthless and act in a way that shows or suggests that. That is sin. And this is the heart attitude that Jesus calls out here. Murder is rare. But this anger is very, very common. And Jesus says, if you're just ticking off your list, I haven't murdered anyone today. Tick. You've missed the point. It's heart deep, Jesus says. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who strive for this kingdom living, are not content with that. They say, I haven't physically murdered anyone. They should ask, am I angry? Am I hateful? Who am I putting down constantly in my mind? Who Am I hurting? But it's not just negating evil to see here. The law is positive. It's supposed to bring out good in us. That's what Jesus says in the rest of the verse. Verse 24, if you're, if you're at the altar and you're offering your gift and your brother has something against you, go be reconciled. Those living in the kingdom should be promoting this. Reconciliation, peace, unity, White relationships, holding up the worth of those who are made in the image of God. Jesus fills full the law. And he says, if you think it's just about murdering someone, you've missed the point.
Now I got in a bit of trouble last week. Just imagine for all the things I could get in trouble for, for what I say up the front here. The thing I got in trouble for last week, though, was saying Ferrari were the bad guys of Formula One. Some of you didn't like that at all. Now, I'm really sorry if that upset you. And I'm aware, for some, this is a generational thing. If you're a little older than me, you might see all the glamour of the Ferrari team. And if you're younger than my, like my sons, it will be quite different for you. But for me growing up, Ferrari were the team always winning. And winning, may I say, with a slight smugness to it as well. Often blatantly breaking rules and not getting punished for it. And having some very heavy and often dubious battles, particularly with my usual favourite British drivers. So for me, they did become almost a pantomime villain of the sport. It felt like you were supposed to boo them when they walk on stage. Well, why am I on earth am I saying this at this point? Well, I want us to wrap up this morning by thinking about verse 20. If you've got your Bibles open, verse 20. I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we read that today, you might think, well, of course our righteousness can exceed those guys. They were the bad guys. We are almost conditioned to boo every time they set step into the scene of this gospel. But thinking like that, we lose the impact of this statement. Because for those who heard this first, this was absolutely shocking. The scribes, the Pharisees, they weren't the villains for them. They were the most outstanding people in the nation. The scribes, well, they were the number one interpreters of the word of God. And the Pharisees, well, they were the most devout practitioners of it. If anyone was going to make it to heaven, in their eyes, it would have been those guys. They were top dogs. So when Jesus said this, it must have sent a shiver through. How could their righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees? That's the final question where I want to finish today. How can our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees? I believe in two ways Jesus says this. The first is this. True righteousness comes from Jesus. True righteousness comes from Jesus. You see, on first appearance, all the Pharisees' extra rules made it look like it was harder to keep their religion. But actually, what they were doing was putting in all the extra rules so that the law was able to be kept. By making all their extra bylaws, they were making for themselves a giant tick list, which they believed that they could tick off every morning. They domesticated the law that they, so that they could keep it. They made it small and attainable 
and therefore we're relying on their own ability to do it. And we've already seen in this passage earlier, that's not how one comes into the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy. They mourn their sin, that there is nothing of us, but they hunger and thirst for righteousness that only comes from the mercy of God, and we are totally dependent on him. Jesus Christ is the only one who fulfills the law. He obeyed it perfectly because we couldn't. That is why he is the sacrificial lamb who dies in our place. We can be made clean in him, not because of us. For the wages of sin is death. Our righteousness is like filthy rags, the Bible says. There is nothing of us that could save ourselves. Nothing which says, God, look at me, look at what I've done. It's all as rubbish. But Jesus Christ came and lived perfect and died on the cross to take our punishment upon himself. He is the sacrificial lamb who dies in our place so that we can be made clean in him by coming to him. But if you're relying on yourself, you will fail. And you won't get near the righteousness of the Pharisees. And Jesus says that's way off still. But if you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in him, if you are saved, then you will enter the kingdom of heaven. How can your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees or if the righteousness you have is from Jesus Christ? They were trusting in themselves and it gets them nowhere. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, then you'll enter the kingdom of heaven, it says. That's the first way. But the second way is we live in this kingdom. Followers of the king looking to live in his kingdom as you practice righteousness, it can still exceed that of the Pharisees. Because the accusation against them was everything they did was external. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. Clean and nice on the outside, but full of rotten flesh on the inside. They follow the letter of the law, ticking their boxes but not the spirit, the heart, not the inward. Where the call of the kingdom, to live in God's kingdom, to live under the reign of Jesus, a true Christian heart is not the legalism of the Pharisees, but a desire to do the will of God. To not tick the list to say, I haven't murdered today. But to say, what does that mean in my heart, in my attitude, in my love for the king and for everybody else? As we leave here today, I pray that you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ that you see that we cannot do it ourselves. There's nothing I can do. 
but he has done it all. That we're trusting in him fully for our salvation. That we have his righteousness. And in that we know forgiveness of sins, peace with God and the sure hope of heaven. Pray you know that today. And if you do know that, rejoice in it afresh today. But as we started out this year and as we came to this gospel, we said our great prayer this year is that we will know Jesus Christ more. As his people, that we will know the king more. And that our, the desire of our heart will be to love him more. And in doing that, we will love his law. And we will want to walk in it. Not as a chore, ticking off surface level things, but saying, Jesus, change my heart. Align my heart with yours. Help me love the things that you love and hate the things that you do hate. To walk in your light, to walk in your way with a heart of obedience that Jesus showed us towards his Father. See, we're going to think a lot more about this next week, but what we're seeing here, this wasn't a new concept that Jesus was introducing. It was the way it was always supposed to be. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. To the praise of his glorious name. Amen. In the quiet, now why not think of how Jesus fulfills the law, how he lived the perfect life because we couldn't, how he died in your place. If you know that and are following Jesus, rejoice in that today. Rejoice that you have his righteousness. And if you've never come to God, why not take that time Pray, Jesus, show yourself to me. Show me myself and show me you. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are seeking this kingdom life, then pray God would help us to love Jesus and to love his word and to walk in his way, not because we have to, but because we want to. And we want to love him more.